From the newsroom at Eater, I'm Amanda Clute. And I am Daniel Janine. And this is Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. With a little help from the biggest names in the world of food and the journalists here at Eater, we try to understand what's happening right now in kitchens, restaurants, and dining rooms around the world. Today on the show, we are talking about the biggest stories of 2019. Because you know what, Daniel? It is halfway through December. We are almost at the end here. Yeah, we sure are. So we brought in a bunch of our buds to talk about their favorite stories of the year. And then we're going to talk about some of our favorite stories of the year. And you know what, Daniel? I want to challenge us in this episode to talk about anything but the Popeye's fried chicken sandwich. Anything but. Yeah. I feel like we spent a lot of time on the show, but also just in our lives. Fried chicken free episode. I would just like a break from it. It was a giant story, maybe the biggest story. It's too obvious. I think we can Bigger than tariffs? Bigger than tariffs. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can expand our horizons, Mm -hmm. take some different angles, and see what else happened this year. Serena Dye, editor of Eater New York, what was your top story of the year? My number one top story. So <laughs> yeah. there are just so many fantastic ah, stories on Eater New York. Hard to pick, but one that Great I, website. Really good website. Everyone should check it out. Uh, the, the story I uh, thought might be kind of funny uh, was the rise of Impossible Burger and how it kind of impacted us at a local level. Mm. Um, so this year, we had a Burger King that was delivering Impossible Burgers or claiming rather, that it was delivering Impossible Burgers. And we got this tip from this guy who was, like, pissed because he said, you know what, I've been ordering these Impossible Burgers from the restaurant and uh, on for delivery, and I was like, this is awesome. I haven't had a Whopper in a long time. This is great. And one day he's getting off the train. He's walking to the location of the Burger King. Because he's been, he's been saying, you know, I've been so happy to be receiving these from the Burger King. I'm going to go check out the brick-and-mortar location. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he's trying to eat less meat trying to help the environment, et cetera, et cetera, his health. Show up to the location, they're not selling the Impossible Burger. He's what? like, what the hell? Yeah. How, like, no, I've been ordering it for delivery. Turns out there was a mistake on their Seamless page, and they shouldn't ever have been offering it. But because the whole Burger King ad campaign for their Impossible Whopper was like, yo, it tastes just like the same thing. Here's the taste test. Like, absolutely the same. And so this guy was like, I just thought it was was it. And because that's what they told me. That's what Burger yeah. King told me. Um, so he had been eating beef unknowingly Whoa. from the Burger King. But he reached out to us. You investigated the tip. How, how was it happening? How was he receiving Burger King? Well, or, or impossible. So Burger King, the franchise, and we're all like, it was a tech error. It was a tech yeah. error, um, um, the part of the, the franchise. Um, they basically said they shouldn't, it shouldn't have even been there. But uh, what they were saying was that, well, we're telling the delivery drivers to tell the customer that it's actually just a beef whopper. Yeah. But of course, the delivery driver wasn't saying it. Yeah. You know, it was just like, it not was, keeping track. It was a broken, broken telephone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so I mean, I think impossible is game changing. Like, I think it should be a replacement for a lot of fast food. Like people can't get rid of fast food. If it's impossible. That's great. That said, um, with things like this, when you have a big chain like that, the logistics are wild to me. Mm-hmm. I was even wondering, like, oh, this is rolling out so quickly. How is this going to roll out in a way where it's going to be completely smooth? Like, what if you're vegetarian? What if you, like, can't eat beef for religious reasons? Like, there are all these different things. Like, oh, how many of these individual Burger Kings are going to, for example, not cook their Impossible on the same place that they cook the beef, mm-hmm. uh, which I think also had happened this year, not they, in New York, but elsewhere. They're all cooking them on the same griddles, and yeah. there's actually a lawsuit happening in California. Yeah, from vegans, right? Yeah. 
They don't want that meat juice on their non-meat on their non-meat patty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of vegans are very serious about that line. Um, and then the other, then I, the delivery thing was the same thing where you have so so. I don't know how many people, the average like McDonald's goer knows that a lot of these different locations are run by franchisees. Yeah. So even in New York, uh, all the chain locations, it's usually one guy who runs like 10 Dunkin' Donuts or something. And so that's just so many people. It's not one big company who has quality control over every single location. So there's just undoubtedly things are going to happen when something new like this comes up. You know what? This story really had it all. It had impossible making waves. It had the growth of delivery services. It had the difficulty in communication between corporate and a franchisee. And it had vegans getting pissed off. So <laughs> I see how this story to you was really, it's really kind of 2019. It's just so much happening and so many errors. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. A lot of trends and just coming out in the real world <laughs> like a child, a little yeah. deer fumbling around until it gets on its feet. Yeah. I think it's going to walk this year. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Serena. Thank you. So, Daniel, we were just cleaning up the office. Were Uh, we? Yeah, tidying up. Yeah. Cleaning out the closets, et cetera. It was really hard for me to wrangle you to get that done, you know, as the more organized of the two of us. I just just don't want to do it. Yeah. You Um, just sit there and you have all your boxes of weird cereal and stuff. (laughs) And I'm just like, Amanda, let's go. You said you'd do it this day. So one of the many things that you had accumulated, in addition to G.I. Joe's and keto cereal, Mm -hmm. was a six-pack of liquid death water. Yeah. Tell us what that is. Well, liquid death water was just, um, it's a canned water. That is meant to give like concert goers. In, in its initial idea, it was meant to give concert goers and you know party havers the amount, the same amount of fun with the giant can of aggression as a nice tall boy of beer or like a limerita would. You know, it's meant to. It's meant <laughs> limerita. To, I mean, that's the worst possible example I could have said. But it's just meant to give you. It's meant. It's meant to. F- Simulate the experience, simulate the alcohol experience without the alcohol. Mm-hmm. If we were to move on, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I had uh, the liquid death water. I, you know, it, it, I think the reason that this story caught fire is because it's because a lot of a lot of people thought that this was a silly reflection of um, the masculine desire to have like flames and like tailgatey broy stuff in I, in touching everything including their water. Yes. I think the other side of it is that people were just Oh, yeah, I forgot that part. super surprised and a little incredulous that they uh got 1.6 million in seed funding and were trying to raise up to 10 million yeah. in series A funding. Right. Because for tall boys of water. Tall boys of water. I really don't I have nothing against liquid death water. I the, I feel like if you're going to do a new kind of water, the one thing it's got to do is taste as good as the rest of water. I found it <laughs> too tinny. I didn't uh, enjoy drinking it. Mm, yeah. Um, but I'm sure they've got those kinks. I'm sure it's even more dead than it was when they first launched it, and they've mm-hmm. really got those kinks figured out. I think a lot of people were bummed. Like, there's so many great businesses in the world that people are trying to start. Yeah. And it's so and you such classic VC culture. That they'd be like, oh, of course, this tall boy of water called Death would get the would get this huge investment. Um, but you know what? I uh, I, I appreciate, obviously, as I'm a slight contrarian, but I appreciate where they were coming from in terms of trying to rethink water. I mean, because like we've just done, I feel like we've gotten every iteration of water mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. bottle. 
So let's, you know what? Let's Why not try a tall to boy? Some, let's try to have some fun. You know, do we need a better laser pointer? I don't know. I know I'm happy we've got some liquid. I'm happy the the money went to liquid. <laughs> is that the option? <laughs> that invest in liquid death or a laser pointer? Yeah, that, <laughs> that was the Shark Tank episode. From our uh, from this wonderful vantage point that we have now, I think it is a sign of things to come. This idea of taking something that we think of as like um, as a necessity and making it very silly and and just blowing the marketing of it out. So I think that's something we will see more of with standard food products going going forward. And uh, you know what? I, I love it because like as much as people wanted to kind of gang up on it a little bit, I feel like even you get the ang- the people who are most angry about it and it's like, hey, do you really hate this? And they're like, right. yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, it's, I, very, I, I, it's very tongue in cheek what they're doing. Yeah. So it's it's offensive, but not it's thirst. not like crazy offensive. Yeah. It's just like a little obnoxious. It's just obnoxious. And you know what? Obnoxious is okay. In this day and age, I'll take it. Take it. Okay, next up, Julia Rubin, editor of The Goods. What is your 2019 story? It is called, A Mysterious Gut Doctor is Begging Americans to Throw Out This Vegetable Now. Whoa. Hold on. I'm not done with the... Sorry. But like which? Okay. It's an important part of the headline. Yeah. The story is based on this thing called chum boxes. Yes. Which are, I'm sure most of you are aware, it's when you read a legitimate piece of content online, or maybe, I mean, varying levels of legitimate, and then at the bottom, there are all these stories that are, like, very clickbaity. Even, you know, fly to Antarctica for zero dollars, or every doctor in America wants you to stop eating this vegetable now. And then the point is, is they never really give away the information and you have to click to find out. But this story speaks to me, obviously, because, you know, I'm a big fan of the gut. But what uh, (laughs) why is this such a 2019 story for you? Yeah, well, so first of all, yes, like chum boxes are uh, really, really terrible. And they are on all of the Vox sites and the New York Mag sites and CNN and the Atlantic and extremely valuable, legitimate, important uh, journalistic outlets. But it is a way for media companies to make money very easily. And, uh, you know, 2019, all about who, who's trusting the media and what are we reading and what is real and what is not. And and what vegetable should we stop eating? I mean, exactly. You know, wellness. This is a wellness story. Mm-hmm. Everyone really cares about the gut. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Caitlin does a really nice job here explaining, like, you know, the media ad ecosystem. Why is this something you're seeing on all of your favorite websites? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Why mm-hmm. is it so garbagey? Why does it persist? Um, but then also, like, who is the gut doctor? And what vegetable does he hate and think is ruining your life? So did we ever find out what vegetable that he thinks you should stop eating? Caitlin, Caitlin thinks she did, and I agree with her. Yeah, but the point is, is that there's no objective truth, right? Like, there's or Or is there? I mean, th- this doctor thinks there is, is not making that readily available however right right. um so yeah so it's like a real like this is how the internet works right and also like oh man we really we really care about this kind of stuff right now the reason i love this story and i don't know if this is as much a 2019 thing as much as just like recent history is that a lot of health pitches that you get online where especially where it's trying to take you somewhere else trying to charge you money are like here is the one simple thing that you can either add to your diet or cut out of your diet that is going to punch above its weight class and make a significant improvement in your health. I mean we saw it with the medical medium and celery juice 
Uh, we saw it, and and now we're so I don't know if how trained we are to as a general America to be thinking about our gut bacteria, but certainly amongst people who are paying for things on the internet, uh, there is interest in gut bacteria. Oh, yeah. I mean, I get pitches all the time for probiotics. There's all these direct-to-consumer probiotic companies mm-hmm. now. Like, it is it is trendy. Also, as someone who, you know, can sometimes have a sour stomach, yeah. really care a lot about what's going to make me feel better. Right. And I wanted to know, like, this is, I mean, I, this was assigned because it just kept, it, it was something that we kept seeing and kept seeing and kept seeing ourselves on websites. People were tweeting about it. And I was like, please find this out for me. I mm-hmm. need to know. Mm-hmm. I need to know for my own gut health. And you know what? I'm, I'm not going to stop eating the thing she th- thinks he wants us to Are we to not going to say eating. the thing? I mean, I don't want to give it away, but should, should I say it? Well, I'll say that I read her piece recently and I don't remember which one it was. It's corn. It's corn. It's corn. Yeah. I love corn. Corn in general is probably a thing that is a it is a good idea to stop eating because there's just so much corn out there and most of it is probably most of it is probably coming from super factory farming industrial centers, but I mean good corn is good oh, corn. Oh, I thought the reason was like it's hard to process and like can stop you up. Well, I, this, yeah. <laughs> Can, I mean, with the celery juice, which is something we've talked about, I mean, the celery juice has to get praise as a story of the year because it was insane the celebrities that had, enjo- had endorsed yeah. celery juice. I think De Niro had said celery juice had changed his life. I think something that's very 2019 for me is just this idea that, like, things can start in the way wacky echo chamber, like the way wacky health spheres of the internet, and then manage to trickle their way into what we see as like more mainstream. So for instance, charcoal was something that was like, yeah. uh, was beloved by certain people as a, as an antioxidant or as a detoxifier. And then, you know, two years later we're eating uh, charcoal ice cream, but you know, celery juice was something that was like so kooky, but yet you, you start to see it at our mainstream New York and LA juice places. So it's like how many of these consumers are actually thinking it's kooky and how many of them are just people that we see every day that are like going home and reading De Niro saying that celery juice changed his life and being like, well, I've got 10 bucks to spare on a juice. Why not? I mean, even something like keto, which Vox has done a ton of reporting on, Mm -hmm. especially this year, that like... Keto is a great example. Yeah, it was like so fringe. And then all of these celebrities endorsed it. Yeah. And now it's just like this whole like cult of keto and wanting to be in ketosis and or like um, intermittent fasting, I feel Mm -hmm. like is similar. Yeah. Keto is a great example because keto was something that, as you said, had legitimate some legitimate um, support from health communities. Yeah. And then being in ketosis is actually what the thing is. And then they just took it and they made it keto. And now we have bars in the office that are filled with corn syrup that have the label keto on them because it doesn't actually mean anything. Wow. Yeah. Keto friendly. Like keto friendly as a term means absolutely nothing. 2019 in terms of food brands for me is seeing the most ludicrous shit at Whole Foods. Like yesterday I bought these things that were like cauliflower snacks, like made with cauliflower and avocado oil. And they were cauliflower chips made with avocado oil. And I turned them around and it was like, Mostly cassava, which fine, but that's a potato. St- that's like that's like a potato style starch, and it was mostly fried in canola oil. So it's like brands are so aware of the buzzwords that we want to see, like fried in avocado oil, and yet they don't care about manipulating our interests and just selling us 
things that are like labeled as health products, which are really like maybe 30% better according to the spectrum that I've randomly created than what we're used to eating. I mean, brands are bad. I don't know if you've read uh, Vox.com slash The Goods, but a, a thing you would perhaps learn there. Is that what you guys there, do there? It is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> what else I would say is 2019, we just want to feel better. Yeah. Rough fucking year. Rough year for our guts and for our minds. Oh, it's true. No corn 2020. We'll be right back with more of the biggest stories from 2019. Okay, next up, Helen Keskin, what is your story of the year? 2019, reduced to one story. No it, pressure. It's got to be the Game of Thrones coffee cup, man. Ah. Has to be. Why? Because it just went into the to the meme machine. I feel like and now almost these, never yeah. came out. But yeah. then we we just moved on to the next thing. It, <laughs> I just I loved it because it was a stupid mistake that happens all the time, and it's whatever. Rewind. Yeah, sorry. What's the mistake? The mistake is that on one of the final episodes of the final season of the biggest show, biggest TV show in the world, Game ever, of Thrones, maybe. ever yeah. maybe, people spotted a a coffee cup just chilling. Just, on the high table, yeah. Um, for like the celebration, I mean, is there a spoiler alert at this point? Well, there was a celebration. That's fine. There's a celebration at the end of the season, yeah. Um, because no one died. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, and um, and then people spotted a, a coffee cup, which was initially thought to be a Starbucks coffee cup, but mm-hmm. it is not. It wasn't. Found, it's not. No. Okay. So anyway, the 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 image of the coffee cup in this famous yeah. scene. Went totally viral. And right. I think, like, at the end, I mean, we don't want to talk about too much about the show, but at the end of the show, people thought it was the general consensus with the, mm. the show had kind of become a bit of a joke. Right. So just that they had this insane yeah. screw up. It seemed to be like. Represented the, the show, and it was a food angle, so it, good for us. I mean, <laughs> we love a crowbar. We love a crowbar. That's what <laughs> Helen and I, Helen and I, I will say, because we sit next to each other at work. We just look at food stories constantly, yeah. and we just when people find angles to talk about something from a food lens that really has nothing to do with food, we call them crowbar stories. Yeah, the crow- so I love this, the crowbars. <laughs> so this was as good a crowbar. I mean, is this, this my favorite crowbar? And of you the know year? what? No, I wouldn't even. I would say this is not even a total crowbar because like, not completely. Yeah, it's coffee. It's food. But it, yeah, I mean, it did. It did really represent. Um, I mean, not. A lot of people weren't really pleased with the last season. Yeah. Um, and the more the episodes progressed, the more people became displeased. But this seems to be like the cherry on top of the cake. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think on top of the pressure to, I don't know, resolve whatever it was that they wanted to resolve, everyone <laughs> knew how much money was going into this show. Yeah. It's $15 million an episode. All right. How could you have missed yeah. a coffee cup? Just the amount of eyes. So many eyes. So many eyes. On set. With, you know, the production behind the cameras yeah. to the editors. I heard that not, not that many producers were able to see it, though. Like, the final eyes on it, not that many just because they were terrified of leaks. Oh. So that's part of it. But I think the biggest issue is obviously no one's watching the coffee cup because it's kind of the same color as a table. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, every, everyone, everyone, like, one person saw it. And because of the internet, everyone saw it. Yeah. But... What I love the most about it is that unless you recorded it or you have like, mm-hmm. you know, you which I don't even know who does that anymore. Uh, DVR. Yeah, yeah. DVR'd it. You can't find it anymore because they edited it out. So on HBO, yeah. it's not there. Right. So I, I love that. I love that, you know, maybe in 20 years time, someone's going to sell a videotape cassette of that footage for several million, <laughs> okay. several million dollars. <laughs> yeah. So probably. what was the fallout though? Like what were people saying? What do you have, uh, what do you have on, on your little notepad there? I, I, 
It's a post-it. Okay. Um, but the fallout wasn't really anything. It was just that people just went nuts mm-hmm. in, the, in the meme machine yeah. of it all. So everyone just had their little fun on Twitter. Hey, Pellin, um, as a 2019 story to you, yeah. uh, missed coffee cup in Game of Thrones. Yeah. It can only happen once. So it's a very rare crowbar. And it's not even coffee. It's fucking tea. Really? Yeah. It's a tea bag. At least that seems more appropriate. That's totally more appropriate. Yeah. Oh, I, I love it because it's just, it's a stupid human error because, yeah. you know, we're all idiots. Okay, Pellin, and while you're here, you were also a big fan of the fact that Stephen Ross yeah. held a fundraiser for Trump. Oh, yeah. And Stephen Ross owns Related, which has a huge stake mm. in Mamafuku, in mm-hmm. Equinox, in SoulCycle. And you were very invested in the in in the waves caused in terms of Mamafuku fandom yeah. as uh, elite liberals and liberals in New York were faced yeah. with this stark realization that their beloved restaurant group had taken, I mean, if, you know, step after step after step, effectively Trump money. Right. And it's um, the reason why I liked it mm-hmm. so much. I, and by liked it, I just mean I thought it was a perfect en- encapsulation of the tension that people find themselves in. Yeah. Of... How do I spend my money? Mm. And then where does my politics lie? Mm -hmm. And like, is that, you know, a a Venn diagram or is is it, you know, a full circle? Yeah. I think what was great about that, though, was just the amount of posturing that was happening uh, (laughs) (laughs) online. Never going to Mama Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, it also it started off with Billy Eichner canceling Equinox membership. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, people started looking into the T's and C's and the receipts. And then they realized that Momofuku, Milk Bar, the, the gang was all there. Yeah. Um, and then it began, I yeah. think, because I think people don't know how to not. I, th- I think it's it's easy to find another luxury gym, but it's harder for people to think about where to eat their pork buns and noodles if they really like the pork buns and noodles. Well, also that Mamafuku as a company is so public about right. how much work, how much good work they're yeah. doing for their communities, how their exactly. their restaurants become a hub, how yeah. they are very conscious of benefits and healthcare. And it's right. just like, if you really want to be someone who's not going to yeah. support any money that you associate with the Republican Party at all, yeah. then it's very, because like, on one hand, it's very liberal, and on the other hand, it's very Republican. Exactly. Or so it's 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 jarring, and, and I think it's it caused a lot of people to short circuit. Yeah, and and that there were some heads exploding. That, right, and that's what cracked. I feel like there were some people who were just like on Twitter outside of Mama Fuku's, just walking around in a circle, right. not sure whether or not to go in, like they were yeah. some uh, warped character in The Sims or something like right, that. Right, exactly. It's like it's like you know when when people are trying to be like, is it is one week enough if I don't go for a week? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if it's like for a month, like I did a month, yeah. it's fine, right? Yeah, it's. It, I just thought it was hilarious. Like it just cracked me up so much. It's it's like, it's like when people stand in front of the recycling and they have like a mix of stuff that they need to throw out. Yeah, and they they don't want to. They're just like stuck and short circuiting in front of like how do I throw out this paper towel and, and is then it worth and then fifteen seconds of my time right. to really figure this out. And it's it's all it's that it was that all over all over again. And I I loved it just because I think. I mean, my my thing was you can't be 
the idealistic version of yourself when you I mean this is going to get really really communist sounding but you can't be you mm-hmm. can't be the perfect version of yourself when you live in a in a deeply capitalist world where money is always dirty it's fine like it's fine it's gotten to, like you do what you can and then the rest of it is fair game and yeah. this was a perfect example of that well there are so it many, trickles yeah. down from some shit from some shit it just trickles down so it 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 was funny to me just because i think um especially with um, with Chang and with Tosi. I think for them it was an issue of, like, we, we have to say something about this because now we're catching fire. And it, I'm sure it was earnest for the both of them. But it's always tough because it's New York real estate and it's rotten to the core. Like, what are you meant to do? Mm-hmm. There's nothing to do. I think mostly it, it was just funny to watch from the sidelines as someone who's completely uninvolved, you know. <laughs> just the head spinning that was just going on? Just the head spinning, just the posturing, just the, the Twitter lecturing. I'll see you at Equinox later. Yeah, yeah. Which <laughs> class are you going to? <laughs> Next up, our senior social media manager, Adam Musa, is here. Thank the Lord to talk about sexy Colonel Sanders. Is that is that even correctly phrased? The best way to phrase it would be to say that KFC did their utmost to make Colonel Sanders sexy this year. Do you I be- mean, yeah. sexier than, than he has previously been. I mean... Sexy is in the eye of the beholder, but this year <laughs> there was definitely a thread throughout the year of like, oh, there's a strong contingent of the internet that's horny for Colonel Sanders in his various yeah. iterations. Yeah, yeah. So wait, let's just re- rewind. Basically, KFC has tried to modernize Colonel Sanders' famous image, at least for their digital marketing. Yes, is that fair? It's not. It, it is, but it, it varies from campaign to campaign. That's. Uh, kind of the signature of what KFC are doing with this. They're treating the Colonel as this, uh, <laughs> like, let, let's call him like Batman and yeah. all these different actors have played yeah. him. So in the last few years, like Reba McIntyre has been the Colonel and and Rob Lowe has been the Colonel. Uh, but the most interesting thing that they did this year was not about celebrities playing the Colonel. It was about their CGI, CGI influencer Colonel. version of the Colonel who... Uh, was dropped in, into a campaign in April of this year. Yeah. And he is this very <laughs> realistically rendered man. Right. Probably mid to late 20s, I would say, judging by the look of the of the colonel. Uh, definitely a parody of influencers, of, of like Instagram influencers. But basically the best way to describe this guy is that he's the hipster colonel. Yeah. Uh, and he's got like long silver hair that's been slicked back and he's got this impeccably coiffed mustache and... Uh, silver fox like, hair. Yeah, but he's obviously quite young, so it's... It's weird and it's kind of unsettling, but the second we posted this uh, to the Eater account when the story dropped, we were inundated on Twitter with all these people being like, this guy, oh no, they made the Colonel hot. I'm so horny for Colonel Sanders. (laughs) This man can ruin my life and wreck my credit score. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) that campaign, it it didn't continue for too long, I don't think, because KFC as a brand has the tendency to just like roll from one outlandish thing to the other because all they want at any given time is headlines because their chicken is not very good. So uh, I say that with love. I, I love KFC elsewhere in the, in the world, just not in America. Right. So that, that was like kind of the, the real big start of it. And then around September, that's when we got the video game, the Colonel Sanders Dating Simulator, that was styled on what? Japanese dating simulators. Yeah. Um, so if you're unfamiliar, these games uh, have 
have stories and a lot of characters and you are basically quote-unquote romancing characters uh, within the game by making choices in dialogue and, and mm. little mini-games and stuff. It's all fun, uh, but KFC took the unusual step of just making a whole game. This is not the first video game that they've made, but it is one where you expressly uh, have this choose-your-own-adventure right. with a character who is modeled on the same young colonel that I just talked about. Is it fair to say that KFC is just throwing a lot at the wall, seeing what sticks. They discovered through social media that people were uh, attracted to their new CGI kernel, and then they were like, let's make a dating video game out of them? No, I think that this was probably part of a larger strategy because the lead time on making this yeah. video game is, is more than six months. I think all KFC really did was read the tea leaves and say everybody on the internet is horny as hell, <laughs> which... Uh, we have covered off in like in our end of year look back at, at 2019. Uh, we had a story about horny brands and uh, brands on on social media, specifically Twitter, just tweeting unbrand like things about being sexually active. So KFC <laughs> was just sort of in on this early, right? And uh, they they appeal to an audience that is just overwhelmed with hormones. Uh, so do you think in terms of their desire, which is to get headlines and clicks. Is this job well done? Well, it works for... <laughs> <laughs> we don't... We, as a as a journalist, or rather journalist adjacent, because I'm social media, um, but as a person who works with our news team, we don't pick up everything that they do, because, um, again, that would be something every week. It's just outlandish, ridiculous stunts. Mm -hmm. But something like this, there is a level of creativity in that that you have to respect, and uh, <laughs> a willingness and a, and a desire to be part of culture in a way that even if people are not eating your chicken, your your brand mascot is is a character. Yeah. That's that's wild. Like Ronald McDonald doesn't have that that kind of influence. Right. What what fast food mascot could even come close to the cultural impact that Colonel Sanders has? All right, Adam. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Dan. Goodbye. It's my pleasure to any anytime you got a horny brand you need to talk about, I am your man. All right, Daniel. Mm. We've talked a lot about stories outside of the restaurant world. I want to talk about the biggest story <laughs> inside the world of high end dining. Do you know what I'm going to bring up? Do you know no, what it is? No, but I'm down. Yeah, I mean, this is this is your fave. <laughs> What's For anyone story? who doesn't know, Daniel loves fine dining. I don't a buy... fine dining aficionado. He has a whole video series about it. He, on, in his personal life, just goes to a lot of great restaurants. Anyway, not that side frequently. Track. Okay, I'm talking about. I just think let's I'm respect the art form. Okay, the breakup of Daniel Hum and Wilkadera. Wow, that's biggest not what I was... restaurant divorce of the decade. Wow. Am I right or am I right? Well, you are the uh, the Seymour Hirsch and the Perez Hilton of the restaurant <laughs> scene. I've never had someone more accurately describe me. Thank you. So I think there is nobody on the planet more fit to declare it the biggest divorce. But have there been any other big divorces? Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, Ken Friedman, April Bloomfield, kind of a divorce. Yes, that was more of an Im Different. implosion, yep, I would implosion. say, than a divorce. Okay. Michael White and Chris Cannon right. was a big one from uh, the decade prior, but nothing like this. Yeah. Nothing like this. So, to add more context, Will Gadara, front of house guy, Daniel Hume, chef guy, mm -hmm. get together. They were both working at 11 Madison Park. Alchemy. Alchemy. A fancy restaurant from Danny Meyer. They got some investors or 
So the story goes, one main investor bought it from Danny Meyer, and then from there built an empire. They started a restaurant group called Make It Nice. Then they were going to expand to London together, but the breakup happened first. So now Daniel Hum is opening, he just opened his restaurant in London in Claridge's Hotel, Davies and Brook mm-hmm. in London. And I think the Nomad is opening there soon. But in July, they had, they announced, they finally announced their big split. How did they end up splitting the properties? Daniel is buying out Will from everything. Daniel and the investors. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, rumors started swirling about this in the spring, and there was a lot of talk about how it would be split up, and some people thought Will would take some and Daniel would take the other, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. nope. Um, I think this was a particularly notable divorce, especially in the age of social media, and mm-hmm. then maybe that's a reason that we can declare it one of the biggest stories of 2019, because the two of them were so were famously con- like constantly posting about each other on Instagram yes. and on various platforms, declaring each other their best friend, their brother. It's they, like a weird love fest. It was a weird love fest. I think you know part of it was to solidify the kind of integrity of their brand mm-hmm. that they'd built together. But it definitely seemed like they did a lot of you know su- birthday parties and yeah. surprisey things for each other. Yeah. So. At least for me, and maybe you know you have your ear to the ground more than I do, but at least for me, this seemed like the you know the the nuclear family that are always together that just bought a new bichon and they're like, <laughs> there's nothing wrong here. Yeah, their their earnest love was just so over the top that I think that you're right that that added into the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where like if they weren't projecting this image of this like fraternal bond, yeah it wouldn't have made such an impact that they were breaking up. It was also, for me, like a fun partnership in the restaurant world to follow because I hadn't seen a partnership where there was like a famous front of house person and a famous back of house person because that just seems like the ultimate combination mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to thrive. And you know what? Because like w- they're not really stepping on each other's toes, I get like from an outside perspective. Sure. But clearly there are some damaged toes there. What I love about this kind of story too is because their empire is so big and mm-hmm. so many people work for them, the rumor mill is just like crazy. And so even though a lot of people wouldn't talk <laughs> Even on, now? Oh, yeah. Oh, what are you yeah. hearing, kid? Even what now. are you hearing? Well, no one will talk on the record because the, you know their deal isn't signed yet. Mm-hmm. And so even now, you just hear from so many people in different parts of the organization like about how dysfunctional it is or how this person's doing that or that person's doing this. And they're on, someone's on Team Will and someone's on Team Daniel. It's just like, I love the drama. You love it. Love it. All right, Amanda, this has been a year where you've been outspoken about delivery. Yes. And delivery has where I don't I don't feel like if we looked at this point, you know, halfway through December of 2019 to 2018, I don't think that um I wouldn't say that there are more delivery options or delivery technology has changed mm-hmm. over this one year period, but it, it certainly feels like it has become more seamless, no pun intended. Um, and it, it seems like it, it's more pervasive, but it, most importantly, I feel like it's become people who use it frequently and people who don't, it's become more of a statement, at least around here. Like, is this something, is this gig economy something that we are willing to support mm-hmm. uh, going forward? Yeah, I forward? think the backlash has really begun. Yeah. 
because people are more conscious of the gig economy and the problems that come with it. People are more conscious of VC-backed right. companies that are maybe not doing good for society. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are noticing that, yes, we are becoming ever more reliant on delivery and yeah. understanding like what is actually making this possible. Yeah, Some of this is the gig economy. Some of this is just... Um, these big companies and platforms exploiting restaurants. So, yeah. like, if you're looking at Grubhub and Seamless, the restaurants often provide the delivery people or the delivery service themselves. It's just problematic for restaurants because Grubhub and Seamless take such a big cut. Yeah, and they go through all of these mechanisms to get bigger and bigger cuts. Yeah, um, and kind of a lot of deceptive practices. Yeah. And it's this it's the same thing on the restaurant side where they get used to those additional sales Mm -hmm. and then they have no choice but to accept the growing profits or the growing uh, stake that the companies are taking. A lot of restaurants, restaurant owners feel like they have to offer delivery to be competitive, but some of them say that it's not making them any money. Mm -hmm. Like they're making the food just to pay seamless. And that seems highly problematic in an industry where the margins are so slim anyway. And for me, one of the interesting things is the fact that there are restaurants that are growing purely to be delivery restaurants. Mm-hmm. And there are restaurants that are adapting their business model to you know, close their dining room areas, to have more kitchen space so they can, they can fuel more delivery. Yeah, you have more ghost kitchens. Like This started off really in London where Deliveroo, which is their big delivery platform, started building ghost kitchens for restaurants that they were kind of financing and and it's kind of it's almost dystopian this idea yeah. that they're just funding these pizza kitchens and sushi kitchens and whatever and now it's coming to New York and San Francisco and elsewhere and i think the trend is just going to keep growing the problem that the delivery companies are facing is that the competition is so fierce the the privately backed ones aren't making a profit yet mm-hmm. and seamless/grubhub which is public all of their profits are getting eaten up by the competition. So it's not a given that these guys are going to win, especially nope. if the consumers are waking up to this reality and fight back against this. Yeah. Anyway, so for 2020, look for delivery services to continue to try cool ways of capturing the hearts and minds of America and continue to... brutally to compete with one another. Brutally compete with Maybe the other. Maybe buy one another. Buy one another. Merge. Squeeze restaurants. Squeeze, close restaurants. Squeeze restaurants. Open restaurants. Mm-hmm. And really get their paws... Partner with brands. Get their paws in a world that we've loved so much for so long and maybe not drive incentives in the right way. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eater's Digest. If you like the show, please tell one friend. Also, if you have any suggestions or questions, please email us at digest at eater.com. Thank you to everyone who came on the show to talk about the stories of the year. And thank you to our producer, Martha Daniel. See you next year and next week. Also next week. (laughs) Also every single Friday forever and ever. 